0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. I have a question for you. What country makes the best chocolate? Many of you are going to answer Switzerland. Or if you're an aficionado and maybe really discerning, you'll say Belgium or France. But How many cocoa trees grow in Zurich, Lyon, Antwerp? Shouldn't the country known for growing the best cocoa beans be the one that makes the best chocolate? So captivated by theories of international trade, but with precious little knowledge of cocoa or chocolate, Stephen Wallace set out to build the Omanenhayn Cocoa Bean Company in Ghana, a country renowned for its cocoa and where Wallace spent part of his youth in a quest to produce the world's first export-ready single-origin chocolate bar, What followed would be the true story of an Abroni, or white person in Ghanaian, from Wisconsin taking on the ultimate entrepreneurial challenge. Stephen wrote a great book about it called Abroni and the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar. In just a moment, you'll hear my conversation with Stephen, which was not only about his fascinating book, but just his own life experiences and how it connects with some of the international economic issues we're facing in public life today. But before I get to my conversation with Stephen, I want to give you a holiday gift idea. Do you struggle to find the perfect gift for that person in your life that's just difficult to shop for? Why not give them the gift that keeps on giving? Effective coffee. Effective Coffee is a company for whom the good life is enjoying great coffee contributing to exceptional charities and activating the power of teamwork. Tomorrow, my wife and I are going to start our day with the Costa Rica Chiripo. All of their coffee, no matter where it's from, is fresh from origin. They source it at a price that's equitable for farmers first. Then they roast it carefully and ship it to you right away. It's as fresh as fresh gets. They're a nano roaster, I mean, which is kind of like a micro brewery. I mean, they do things particularly well with particular attention to detail and flavor. What's great is they start every week donating 5% of their revenue. Their goal each week is to donate 20% of all their revenue to best practice charities that actually impact the farmers that grow their coffee. This is where you come in. The more subscriptions and bags of coffee they sell, the closer they get to their goal of giving away 20%. So give someone this gift that keeps on giving or be kind to yourself and let this be your holiday gift. That as you're wrapping gifts for other people that you're not sure where they came from and if they are, are, are participating in some weird oppressive system, here's a gift you can totally feel good about and you can sip it and it will keep you up in the late night hours as you're wrapping in the holiday season. If you go to the website effectivecoffee.com and use the coupon code give and take, you will get 10% off. Not your first purchase or your first 12 or 17. You will get 10% off. For life, you'll be a lifetime 10% off subscriber. So what are you waiting for? Effectivecoffee.com. And now, on to my conversation with Stephen Wallace. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. So you, you've written a fascinating book that tells the story. I love uh, this this Obroni uh, and the Chocolate Factory, kind of a, an homage, I guess, to uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory here, Willy Wonka. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You tell a story about this founding of your chocolate company but it, it's interesting you also talk a lot about just the nature of globalization and i think the first thing that struck me as i read the book is like when people talk about globalization and and markets and and how it's working out in the world and which is especially in our day and age talked about all the time no one talks about africa <laughs> like i feel like that's just never mentioned
1: right that's true well, and Africa's always been a bit of an afterthought and i think people kind of think that those who are interested in Africa um, are are sort of on the sidelines. It's not where really the Western-centric world history is made. But, uh, you know, I I think I'd argue if the 20th century was certainly the American century, it's when America came from an agrarian and became the wealthiest economic power, political power, military power. You know, the 21st century is is maybe less likely to be that. We'll, We'll at least in a period of, I think, shared power. And everyone I think most people think it's going to be some China or perhaps India and my argument would be not in the first half of the 21st century but maybe the second half Africa gets uh gets its act together and and it could become by virtue of natural resources by virtue of um the drive for education of most of the post-colonial African countries. I mean, it's got outstanding potential to really capture and be an economic and political powerhouse. It's got some challenges, of course, but I, you know, I think if one takes the long view, the 21st century may yet see Africa playing a pretty outsized role.
0: How much is is infrastructure just an issue? I mean, I remember I remember in an episode of The West Wing towards the end of the, the show. C.J. Craig, who was the chief of staff, was getting pursued to work for like a bill gates type character and he had like a billion dollars he wanted to do something and she said i'll tell you where she says roads in africa like just infrastructure i mean is there like is there how much of like africa's development is hindered just by infrastructure stuff in certain parts is that is that uh is that a stereotype or is that a real issue in its own development
1: It's, it's, um, no, it's, it's an issue. It's an issue. I mean, my experience is is largely in West African Ghana in particular. And, you know, it's a fast growing population. As soon as a new road is built, um, it's already crowded and within 18 months you'll often see it crumbling. So, so there's all sorts of issues between, I think planning that's, that's ill conceived. It's not very long range planning, you know, so the roads don't have, um, um, you know, Long on ramps or, or left turn lanes. It's as if you just took country roads and just let's make them four lanes wide, but you don't do sort of the the heavy thinking of traffic management and where people going to park or how people going to get on an on ramp with a lane to get up to speed. So it's it's sort of a failure of of planning and money, and quality of goods. I mean, a road should last 30 to 50 years at least, and, and not begin to fall apart in 18 months. So it, it's true. And then you've got all this patchwork of countries, and their roads really don't line up with each other. So um, you've got these apocryphal stories of, you know, a wonderful road transversing Ghana, but then it doesn't meet up with where uh, Togo or Cote d'Ivoire's roads want to meet up. And so you're, there's sort of a lack of cooperation of planning. I mean it's as if yeah I tell people if I had to drive from Milwaukee to Boston and stop and and not just pay tolls, but go through a visa check and then road would change between Illinois to Indiana to Wisconsin dramatically in terms of number of lanes and quality of it. I mean, we, we take these things for granted. So it's, it's, it's true. It's not uh, it's not it's it's a stereotype, but I think a stereotype based with with more than just kernels of truth that infrastructure is one of the things that holds Africa back. I mean, one of the funny things is, you know, we trade and wanted our product going to South Africa um, believe it or not, the apps—the cheapest way to get our product to South Africa was to export it from Ghana, goes up to Europe, comes to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, goes from Milwaukee back to South Africa. And I have, you know, top-flight freight forwarders, customs brokers working on this. It, we're like scratching our heads, going, "Why does the product have to move from Ghana to Milwaukee to Milwaukee to South Africa? That's better, faster, cheaper than any other." Than, than an overland route certainly, or even as a sea freight route. So these are the things we're, we're sort of up against.
0: You you be- begin the book with a really descriptive uh, pass some like a, an introduction about chocolate, and you talk about how it melts at, at 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 body temperature, and I mean it's it's clear reading it you're a lover of chocolate, and you describe uh, shortly thereafter the summer of 1977, right? The first time you were in Ghana was
1: 78 78 1978
0: yeah and there it seems like that that's your another love that you spent i mean early in the book just just you paint a, a picture of africa as one who came to love it and is this i mean is your company sort of the, the fusing of two loves
1: there I mean, well it is um um but let me say this guy you know i when i look and chocolate is the vehicle that brought me back to africa that brought me back to ghana this country for which i had great affection and great love and um When I looked at coming back to Ghana as as an adult you know with some sort of purpose, what was I going to do? and I thought about joining the foreign service but there 's no guarantee you go to the country you want, and even if you do you 'd go for maybe two or three years of rotation then you 're off, off someplace and One of the things I early on realized, even as a teenager that this churn of 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 diplomats in and out um is not how other countries do it, and I didn't. I thought it was hindering success in the U, uh, the U.S. success vis-a-vis other countries in Europe, and Asia, in our success in Africa. Just because about the time you figure out how things work, you rotate it out. So what was I going to do? I had this small business background, and thought that was the vehicle. Now Ghana had really four commodities or four doorways to come back. And one was, it used to be the Gold Coast. So I could do gold. It, it exports diamonds. Um, those are both cartels. Um, I didn't have the capital or, or the, the really muscle to compete there. They they mine bauxite at the time, which, and still do, which is the base metal for uh, mineral for making aluminum. Again, so that's a multi-billion dollar Aluminum smelting play far beyond, but they grow this wonderful cocoa. And I grew up in a family of people who loved to cook. I uh, was very comfortable in the kitchen. So, although you know, I grew up eating wonderful food, a lot of homemade food cooking. I wasn't sort of a, a chocolate fiend. That um, you know, so chocolate became the vehicle to get me back to a place I love, rather than how to incorporate a lifelong love of chocolate um, with a lifelong love of, of Ghana. But it was a, sort of a happy merging of a what became a professional and an avocational interest. I mean, I still love to cook. I make bread. I do all sorts of uh, cooking and enjoy it. But that's avocational.
0: I think the book would have been really different if you went the aluminum (laughs) route.
1: It would have been a little bit of a different story.
0: Can you say say a little bit of of what first drew you there in in the late 70s? I mean, mean, not many people— uh, not many Americans go spend a lot of time in Africa, right? I mean, this is, is it, what, what could you say a little bit about how you got there?
1: Sure. I, I was 16, um, grew up in a town called Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. They had a program called the AFS, which is a high school foreign exchange, um, program and you apply. I won the scholarship and the deal was they picked you for your ability or their potential to have some cross-cultural skills. So you didn't get to pick the country you went to. You'd win the scholarship and they could send you anywhere in the world, which was the great adventure. So I was desperate to go to Africa and, and my dream came true. But if I said, you know, I, I, I must go to Norway, I want to go to Norway, you're likely not to have been picked. So they're trying to get people. and I just luck of the draw. There was, I was the only, um, there were three of us sent that summer, two women and, and myself. And, uh, so the, just the three of us, uh, were sent and I sort of had this crazy, wonderful summer with this, you know, we had a coup that summer and this very traditional family and, um, that's that was started the love affair.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's something interesting too that you say in the beginning of the book. You see, like you wanted to see if you could make a profitable cocoa chocolate business that actually came out of Ghana. That 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 Coke like Ghana was. Like, reputed to have good cocoa, but why can't, why, why can't we make the chocolate there? Right. It gets the, the cocoa would go other places and it was made other places. Why, why is that so challenging? I mean, what was the, like, what was the thing that, that kept that reality from happening until you started your company?
1: Well, I, I think that's it's, it's, has to do a bit with a post-colonial legacy and, and it's sort of inertia that, that comes from it. So, so Africa, um, when you talk about the scramble for Africa in the sort of 19th and, and century and um, early 20th century, I mean, it was the pantry for Europe. I mean, people wanted natural resources. So most of Africa's economy, and this is writ large, was, was extractive industries. It was oil or gas or diamonds or gold or whatever you were bauxite digging out of the ground. And so you were at the. If you look at this as an economist might, as a value chain analysis, Africa was at the very bottom step. It was the first stage industry. So your 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 coffee bean or your cocoa bean, one bean is worth less than a penny. Mm. Now a chocolate bar, um, if you make a pound of good chocolate in Europe. Mm. You- you could sell for $20 a pound or more. Hmm. So I looked at that. If you're, you're selling cocoa beans at a dollar a pound, that would be a pretty good year. A dollar 50 would be a 30 year high. So mm-hmm. you, you could might get a dollar 50 a pound for your cocoa. You could get $25 a pound if you turned it into chocolate. So Wolgana well, was excited that they, they were exporting cocoa at a dollar 50 a pound. Um, I said, you know, what you're really giving up is $18.50 of opportunity cost that you could have done if you could have sold this as a $20 bar of chocolate. And why not? Why, why not bring that Swiss machinery or the American machinery or the Italian um, wrapping machinery? Let's bring it to Ghana and make it there. And that just, it, I don't know why no one had thought of it or no one thought it was possible, but people were just comfortable exporting cocoa beans. It was easy and you wouldn't fail. And I think at some level, there are folks in in um in in life you know and everywhere i mean people don't want to fail they don't want to be embarrassed especially if you're in government if you're a minister you don't want a failure and what i'm doing was risky and i soon found out that if we were going to be a success it would have to be a success shared by many if it was a failure it was going to be all my fault um and that was fine with me i think that's a very sort of american we all americans yeah painting with a broad brush, we're more or less comfortable with trying something. And if it doesn't work, we'll remake ourselves. And now other countries don't have quite that freedom to remake yourself after a failure. So that there's a risk adversity that seemed endemic in Africa, at least in Ghana, that, that I think prevented them from moving up this cocoa value chain or the gold value chain or the oil value chain.
0: And you, you tell a lot of stories about I mean, dealing with uh, local officials, bureaucracies. And it's funny, too. I didn't – you talk in the book about how, like, basically the OPEC is, like, nations, you know, it, it, from as wide as Ecuador. I mean, we think of it as a Middle Eastern thing or something, stereotypically, but there's nations as far off as – That's as right. Vladimir. But, like, there's, like, two, like, countries, right, in the – well, you know, like, the cocoa Cartel is smaller, right?
1: <laughs> and, and, oh, it's and, smaller. Well, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, when people – I think – Think of a cartel and they get scared because it's a, a scary word here in the U.S. We think of OPEC as this frightening cartel. Well, it is 12 countries. Altogether, they they control about 34% of the known oil reserves, um, which means almost two thirds of the oil reserves in the world are outside of OPEC. And yet we're scared to death of OPEC. Um, Cocoa, it's two countries, control Two thirds, almost sixty-four, sixty-five percent of all the world's cocoa come from Ghana and the Ivory Coast, and you know one's a French former French colony, one's a former British colony, and there's almost, um, not to oversimplify, almost a sibling rival rivalry, sibling rivalry, who can overproduce, who can be the biggest cocoa grower in the world this year, which plays into the hands of, of of all the people that process and make cocoa. I mean, if they'd ever behave as a cartel, these two countries, well, the price of cocoa would go up and their cocoa farmers would, would profit even more than they might already do.
0: And, and what
1: what is sort of I mean
0: again you talk about having to deal with government officials you even have this kind of like it, 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 there's this kind of you almost have a James Bond sort of nemesis villain in in this book even but, but what what do you do you see what do you see as unique challenges do, doing something like you did in Africa like if you're other in other places in the developing world Right, like if people are doing entrepreneurial things, what what are the things unique to a context like Ghana that's just really different than other places in the developing world where people maybe from the West are trying
1: to do entrepreneurial things? Um, You know, and I don't know if I I can speak with so many other developing worlds, but I mean, I just think there were so many things that struck me as sort of just different and interesting. I mean, for one thing, you know, I think that you know Americans we say we love free enterprise um but i think if you look at how most of us behave we secretly want to behave like monopolists and you look at all the big companies trying to merge we talk a good thing about competition and yet everyone wants to get as big and behave like a monopolist as they can um and you know in ghana it's kind of i, I find it's the opposite Ghanaians hate monopolists and they wouldn't want to be one even if they could i mean the idea of it is sort of a notion of Selfishness that in a culture of extended families is is a, is is uncomfortable um, and the funny thing as much as Ghanaians purport to hate monopolies, most of them work for a monopoly I mean, when I started this company eighty five percent of them worked for the government, which is the ultimate monopoly so it's a very um you know, there were all these little cultural nuances that, and that might be the case in many post-colonial emerging democracies in a place like Africa. So I think these nuances of how fast you can move and the dealing with folks, I mean, the sheer fact that 85% of the people work for the government when I started meant that was their job. Then if you're asking someone in a ministry to endorse a project that's new, that might fail, and if it fails, and they lose their job. Where are they going to go? Eighty five percent of the jobs are in government. So it, it was sort of, I suppose, naive for me to come in and expect people to be as enthusiastic about my little precious idea um, coming from abroad, from a guy who'd never sold a chocolate bar, even as a Cub Scout in his entire life. You know, I've sort of put myself in their shoes and say, you know, who is this kid You know, with his fancy little report and all his quantitative information? You know, he has no idea how things work. And yet, since I'd grown up there you know, with this traditional family when I was 16 years old, I did have some idea. And I think that gave me the persistence to say, all right, I'm not going to give up on you, you know, where I think many, many U.S. companies say if they were venture capital funded, you know, if you don't make your numbers in five years or six years, there's a remorseless exit strategy. You know, you're fired, they pull out, they go on to the next deal. I knew that in these sorts of environments, it was going to be a 10 year, 15 year investment of time, talent and treasure to get some success. If I was going to get any success at all, it just things move slowly and people don't embrace new ideas that might publicly fail.
0: You know, it's interesting too. You talk a lot about globalization in the book, and right now we're. It seems like we're in this political moment, and but you have a populism that's on, in both parties, right? That are that seems to be moving away from, uh, or at least cynical about, uh, the, you know, the bad deals, <laughs> like these, you know, these international um, trade agreements and things. And, and you, you, I mean, you rightly, I think, hold up your company as, as, as at least. A sunnier side of globalization, i mean how do you what do you think um, Americans are, are miss about the discussion because I, I feel like it 's kind of reflexive and are and it, what kind of nuances on the globalization question are missing from the conversation you think
1: um, probably all the nuance <laughs> is the short answer <laughs> um, you know we use this schoolboy rhetoric you know you 're a winner we 're a winner and a loser there 's a winner and a loser, and this kind of I just call it a schoolboy vocabulary for something that is very nuanced. And and you know, I talk a little in the book, I go back, globalism used to be a good word. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about the Marshall Plan after World War II where the U.S. rebuilt Europe, um, to use today's nomenclature, that would be deficit spending writ large. And that was considered a great thing, an mm-hmm. in international trade with our European former enemies was considered the best antidote to militarism and expansionism and fascism. And so globalism was a good thing. And for about 50 or 55 years, nobody questioned what a great idea it was. By the Seattle protests in 1999, if you recall, all of a sudden, globalism had become a dirty word. It was a yeah. sort of shorthand for an economic exploitation of cheap labor. And where do companies go to find the cheapest labor and and there were there was a sense that's where the vocabulary is winners and losers. We lost jobs here, and I came from the apparel industry. And believe you me, you know, the apparel industry lost jobs in the Northeast and in the Upper Midwest. They all went to down south to, to non union shops. And then they went, you know, and so there was crying and gnashing of teeth in the Upper Midwest and New England. Um, the South was happy. Then the, those jobs went offshore to Asia. Now everyone's mad, you know, in the South that well oh, we lost those jobs. Well, so this is sort of. Um, I just wanted a nuance that if you do – I went back to David Ricardo and Adam Smith. These are the classical 18th century economists and they were talking about comparative advantage of international trade. And I think what they meant was just – it's simple. You do what you do best and you trade for the rest. You cannot grow cocoa in the continental United States. We don't have the climate for it. Okay. So go to a place that grows wonderful cocoa, whose microclimate is absolutely perfect for, for nurturing beans. And how about the machinery we might make in Milwaukee or Boston or Philadelphia? Why don't we buy that, send it to Ghana? All our wrapping comes from Wisconsin-based label and corrugated companies. We export that to Ghana. And, and you do what you do best. Create a new product that we wind up exporting then to Japan, so we're creating you know value from the US to a very competitive high value consumer market japan may be one of the toughest consumer markets in the world so i think if you're clever enough you want to create situations where you what you're exploiting is not just cheap not cheap labor but talent what are the qualities what are the inherent things and it's not the difficulty i think scott is it's not easy to discern or articulate what is our country best at versus another country is best at you know, I think you really got to do some work to figure out what are competitive advantages and, um, you know, interesting in a place like Milwaukee, which was covered with trees. So it has this paper making tradition going back, you know, 150 years and it had German immigrants who came with this printing press technology. And I've been in print shops here in Milwaukee that have printing presses still running from the 1930s. These wonderful old like cast iron machines, well cared for, paid for 50 years ago, you know, so very efficient. And sort of this melding of immigration and national resources, natural resources, you know, gives some advantages for paper making and printing in a state like Wisconsin that other states may not have. So go to Minnesota, go to Pennsylvania, there are other com- competitive advantages if you really think and articulate it. To the extent we, we begin to sell those as a, as an advantage, I think that's a happier um, definition of globalism. It's not just let's all compete for a new company to come to our state. Let's all exploit who's got the cheapest labor, or the best tax deal today. Because those are kind of short term eye candy and they don't, I don't think it's, I think they'll fail the sustainability test.
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Month or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. To be a patron through Patreon. Of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout-out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winter in a Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham. Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zall, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlan, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Cress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, it's interesting because... It, it, It almost sounds like you're saying we don't want to bring all the jobs back. In the sense of like some jobs, some things we, we want here and some things we don't. We like that. There's kind of a mythology, right? That, and again, it, this is bipartisan. There's a populism on both sides that, that's sort of almost romanticized. Like we could go back. We could, we could make everything here, right? And that, or, or some, some kind of mythology like that. That's just, it's, it's, there's a naivete there, right? Like. Oh,
1: huge, huge. I think, I think, you know, it's funny because I, when I started this, there would be these trade delegations. And so I've been on ones where we go from the U.S. and go abroad, or we host them here in the U.S. And and there's sort of a, this is the comic little kabuki dance that happens. Our foreign visitors all want U.S. investment in their country. Let's say it's Ghana. And the U.S. companies that are hosting them say, we want you to buy our products. So there's really no conversation, because everyone wants, I want your money, and you want my money, and it's kind of a, I scratch my head and say, this seems like a wasted effort. I think the nuance is, let's acknowledge we can't do everything. Um, You know, I tell this story, there was a, it was at a, a, um, it was the World Economic Forum, um, you know, which I had to be the smallest company invited there. (laughs) I am ways had no business being there. Um, And there were, countries were talking about, Um, food security and growing their own food and what could be more you know sort of politically uh, popular and say let's we want food security we want to we don't want to be dependent on any outsider And so you have these countries subsidizing you know they don't have water so they have to do these irrigation things and they're diverting streams and they're like unsustainable heavily subsidized to grow crops that don't naturally grow in their country so um and I said, well, say you you didn't you define food security differently? Not that you grow every crop; you have to grow a vegetable, uh, meat, a protein, a carbohydrate. But you figured out what you can do well. Say you make great chocolate, and your chocolate's so wonderful, you could sell it at such a premium abroad that your treasury was overflowing with money, and you could buy your rice from a country that grows rice naturally, and you bring it in cheaper than you could grow it in house. I mean, that's an economist would say that's a better end game. And that's a more rational allocation of resources. But I think we get caught up in, you know, what we fail the nuance that's missing, and you asked about the nuances, is short-term, long-term. In the short-term, there's dislocations. And I think we have to be generous enough and kind enough to help people through those dislocations. But- you know the wealth of a nation is built on on commerce and trade, and 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 so how do you take care of people that are in the short term inconvenienced or are or, or undone economically, so the rest of the boat can still sail in the direction it really ought to be sailing. So that's kind of the nuance that I think gets missed, um, because people got to get reelected every two years or six years, and you have constituents who are in your your district that are going to lose a job, and so you, you you can't be naive to that either.
0: There was a piece in the, I think in the New Yorker or something about Rex Tillerson and Terry Gross on Fresh Air interviewed the author. And he was saying that one of the things that concerns him is that that this... The, the State Department has all these officials all over the world that, that he said you know whether it's fishing embargoes or trade this or these kinds of there's all sorts of um interactions these career diplomats have uh that are really important and that, that our global economy you know in in the, in the market is is really facilitated through a lot of these relationships and know how people on the ground and was worried that in this sort of scaling down of the size that that's going to like have an impact on businesses on commerce is that is there is there a merit to that i mean is your experience um that we i mean i wonder how you see the state american state state department impacting entrepreneurial stuff if, if you're on the ground in another country
1: um, well, well, first, and I think you know, I, in the acknowledgments, I acknowledge the State Department and Commerce Department and, and Foreign Agriculture Service people because I think they're invisible to most Americans. Mm-hmm. If you're living in in, uh, in uh, you know Pittsburgh or Milwaukee or Philadelphia, you don't see diplomats. These are our Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. They are incredibly qualified people. Very competitive. Um, they've got deep language skills in unusual languages that most of us, you know, have never heard of before. Cultural skills, PhDs, and so. My, your first impression for me was, wow, these are top flight intellects, and re- and people really have made a life commitment to learning about different cultures. There are they're comfortably they're comfortable being in uncomfortable situations. Which uh, it brings me pleasure, but I think a lot of people in the United States you know would rather just be comfortable um and so it, they're hugely helpful but but in kind of subtle ways they're not going to close a deal on your behalf, but they can help make the introductions, they see how the linkages work they they um are very active in soft diplomacy. I mean, if you look right now, um, I, you know, I can give you Ghana for example. Ghana, are you know, we fund um, some student exchanges? So students come over to the U.S. and if people ever wonder what our, you know, one of our greatest exports is is collegiate university level education still anywhere in the world people would you know if they had a preference would love to come to the u.s Mm -hmm. for higher education Mm -hmm. now right now we're at a time when china is funding all sorts of scholarships to send young africans to china to learn chinese language and you know 20 years from now the the consequences of this decision to pair bark our state department are going to be huge i mean Mm -hmm. i think you only you know and i think back i mean we're just scott we're repeating history you know when i was in college and studying you know there was a theory how we lost Vietnam, how we lost the Vietnam War. And one of the theories was during McCarthyism in the 1950s, the State Department was purged of people who had Chinese language skills, studied Mao, had a knowledge of socialism and communism because they were considered communists. They weren't communists. They were people who studied communism and studied socialism and and they were purged and so when it came when vietnam and indochina and the french departed from indochina and the the fear of chinese expansionism moved and we didn't have really content experts in the state department that we probably did at the beginning of the 1950s by the 1960s a lot of those people had been purged and i worry that 20 years from now is this a purging um um, about voluntary purging or an involuntary purging um, that gonna, that's going to that's going to have consequences that are going to come back and bite us in an unpleasant way.
0: Hey, you also talk about how. the the, your formula was almost kind of stolen right and and i'm sure i i I, as i was reading this i'm thinking gosh what this is like one industry how i mean i I was trying to think about the complexity of this in many other industries but like they you said that basically they could just get your get your recipe which somebody did right just tweak one little thing make a minute change and then it's a different chocolate right and then that's that that, now you have a competitor right like
1: (laughs) now you have a competitor well yeah and it and it's and it's this sort of imperfect understanding of capitalism you know and, and that's the funny thing because you know i when i started this i was dealing with ministers who had been given scholarships to study in the soviet union this is old cold war so they they had a masters degree in len you know marxist leninist dialectics so this <laughs> <and> they <maybe laughs> read, that's great, that's great and they're in charge of the ministry of trade and industry you know or the finance ministry i mean these sorts of and so their knowledge of of capitalism is you get to do anything you want so if scott you and i had a contract and then two days later someone comes along and offers me a better deal you know rule of law means i have to respect our contract or pay the consequences i found that there were people that said oh no what capitalism means is you strike the the best deal you can every minute of every day and so the fact that we had a contract held no weight. And and I think capitalism, there's nuance. It means you. there's freedom of contract. But when you make a contract, you respect it and you build for the long term. So if you want to go and make a claim that by changing a recipe slightly entitles you to something else, that means our partnership's over. I mean, how do you reinforce the idea that we should be partners with each other with a capital P if you behave like that and then look at me and say, well, that's you know all's fair in business? Well, that's, you know, I've never seen. And this is, I mean, the book talks about The lessons that the fathers I've had in my life taught me about business. And, you know, your your word is your bond and your, your handshake means something because you're building long term. And I was trained as a lawyer. So I'm I'm you know, I know the value of contracts. I write them all the time. But unless there's a commonality of economic interest and some degree of trust, you know, there's no contract that's really going to save the day. Um, at best, it tells you how you're going to disengage from each other as, as, as painlessly as you possibly could. But you've got to have a level of wanting to do business together for the long term. And that, I think, was a challenge for me or it took me longer than I had hoped.
0: Yeah, you know, interestingly too, you, you, I mean, and in, in your story of your company, I mean, you, your own moral compass comes through clearly in the story, and that you, and that you have a sense of values and, and purpose. And I, I think that we often, I think, at least Americans often don't think of a lot of uh, corporations or businesses as 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 having strong moral moral compass. I mean do you think that do you think you're an exception <laughs> i mean or or are there do you know other are there many others like you out there who are hey look you know I'm not in this for charity, I want to make a buck, but actually I want to do it in a way that actually leaves the world a better place than I found it and and actually you know creates partnerships that have real meaning and lasting value
1: well, I think there always have been um um now, now, when I started this world, the word social entrepreneur, I don't think was even had any currency at all. 26 years ago, there's now it's become sort of a hot area and almost to the point where any company says Kinzeo, we're a socially um, conscious company. And um, um, but, you know, I've, I've, you know, worked in in some larger organizations when I was a lawyer and and, and um, and some media companies, you know, there were always really good people there, and the good people, to me, made the company a great company. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't think you're really successful at things unless you really love what you're doing. If it's always just about the money, um, the minute it gets tough or the, there's a better way to make money across the street, you kind of go there. And some of these, I'm always intrigued by how business can be a solution to these large intractable problems. And, uh, you know, Kofi Annan had this uh, global compact movement where he was reaching out to companies to try to solve problems because I think he looked around the United Nations and said, we have 206 member nations, most of whom are Too poor to even, you know, sustain their embassy in New York. And if you look at sort of the fifty largest, the hundred largest economies in the world, fifty of them roughly are corporations. They're not even countries. So ExxonMobil is larger, or about the same size as maybe the economy of Turkey or Sweden, for example. So, you know, I think there's a sense in which companies and corporations can be a force of good in the world. Um, And um, you know, they have to have customers that like what they do. I mean, so for us, it's I think it's a competitive advantage because we don't have as deep a pocket as many of our competitors. So how we do things, um, to the extent there are people that it resonates with, it it benefits us. And and as I said, you know, when I define sustainability, it has to be enough profit so we can we can be here today, tomorrow, and ten years from now. We can pay farmers what they want for the beans. We can pay workers in Ghana what. Um, you know, gives them the means to live a good and happy life. And we can pay our suppliers here in the United States. And, um, you know, then it's happy. That's, that's the satisfaction of running a business. And so part of the book is what it's like to run a slow business in a fast company world. I mean, we're all, we're all so impressed with, with creating billion dollar evaluations out of the ether. And I just wanted to articulate that maybe for many of us, the businesses we start will be, you know, our life's work. And there's many satisfactions from, from taking a long, hard dive into these intractable problems and coming up with some small solutions along the way. Yeah. And you've been, you, the,
0: your company's 20 years old, right? Uh,
1: 26. 26 years We're old. We're almost going to be 27 in February. Yeah.
0: 27. So, I mean, most business ventures that you know, more go under than, than stay afloat. Right. And in that you talk about a lot of the challenges in the book that, you know, it's, you know some of the setbacks and what, what, what was the moment where you, you thought, okay, this isn't going to work and the dream's going to die. And I got, I got to live, I got to brace for the fact that the dream's going to die. What was the worst kind of time?
1: Um, um, I never thought it would die. Um, uh, which is which is sort of the naivete of of youth or or <laughs> inexperience in or a combination of all of them. Um, but I mean, there were times you know, and I talk about it in the book, within the first six months of the founding of the company, the first you know we we were sued um by a company that had revenues of in the tens of millions of dollars, a European company. We um, there was a divestiture that was being orchestrated and driven hard by the World Bank that would have disrupted our supply chain and our production capacity it would have put us out of business. And we had at the same time, the U S government using you know, my tax dollars and your tax dollars to fund consultants, to look at how to the feasibility of making gourmet chocolate in Africa, which is something I had funded privately and was already doing. So all within six months, I had these three bullets kind of coming right at me, these three, um, you know, um, um torpedoes in the water. And I could see the trails coming at me. and I said, well, you know, if I just, Hold my breath and dive underwater for about ten feet. You know they'll pass over my head, and then we see, you know, what sharks are circling me. And you know, you just took one thing at a time. But it almost when it becomes comic, you're sort of, I don't know, you're a little, you you get buoyant. I don't know what the other word is, but I, you know, it's a combination of of stubbornness and and naivete. And and there was a joy in working in Ghana. I, and I, I was I was ready to face the fact that if it did end. I'd given it everything I can. And I think you wake up every day and you say, if this ends, so be it. You know, I'll go on to the next thing and, and make my peace with it. Um, and so i never wanted to get the point. And I saw this with some people doing business in Africa. They quickly get angry. They get angry at their African partners. I was, I never wanted that. I love the place too much. You know, if it, if I got frustrated because of my own temper, or temperament, it's time to get out. Just go there as a tourist. Spend your vacation dollars. Go to restaurants, stay at a hotel, go on to it. Get your Africa fixed that way. But I never wanted to get to the point where it made me angry at doing business in Africa. And, I, and I'm not. I mean, it's a great, ch- it's a challenge. And I think, like anything that brings you pleasure in life, it's the challenges that you wake up and say, Oh, am I glad I did it? Um, and, and I remain that way to this day, very optimistic and uh, with a smile on my face most of the time.
0: It's really interesting today, like in our public life, we we talk a lot about regulation, deregulation, and, 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 you know, we're getting rid of regulations and things grow and you get rid of it. I mean, as somebody who's built a successful international business, like what, what is your relationship to regulation? Like, how do you see it? Is when, what, 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 when is it sensible? When is it excessive? I mean, do you, like, do you, do you spend time thinking about that stuff, given a lot of time thinking about it, given that, that that's such a active part of our debate in public life
1: right now, right? It is, it is. And, and, and I can tell you that, um, let me tell you an anecdote. So I was talking at, you know, it is a small pond. Um, when i talk about this sort of the business community doing business in ghana so you find myself this our little chocolate company I, i'm at a luncheon with a huge oil company and one of the largest oil reserves in the world is now being processed offshore in ghana so a huge billion dollar oil company and the ceo and i were chatting and he was telling the story of how they had they called it a burp and that's it's it's offshore oil and it's undersea and if a little bit of Oil or sand encrusted oil comes up through the pipe. They call it a burp, and it's maybe fifty or a hundred gallons comes to the surface. So that was new in the relationship with the government of Ghana. And the oil company said, "Well, well, in the U.S., if this happened in the Gulf of Mexico, you'd report it, you'd clean it up. There'd maybe be a ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollar fine." So they went to Ghana and they said, "You know, we had this burp. We cleaned it up. It's all." you know, this is what happens. And Ghana came back and, and said $29 million fine. They just pulled it out of the air. Wow. And I'm <laughs> laughing. And I said, let me get this straight. You're an oil company executive who's wishing they had better environmental regulation in Ghana. So it wasn't just a minister making things up at the spur of the moment, you know, then, then you couldn't make up these numbers. And he said, you're absolutely right. So I, I mean, one of the Ghana is, um, you know, I tell people in the US, you believe me, you me, you want regulation, you want a rule of law that works And the, the key, I think, is you said, what's the right level, but but a rule with no regulations is anarchy. And it's, you won't get investment, and you'll wind up with corruption. And I think, you know, there's a level of rulemaking that is absolutely crucial in the, in the you know the tough thing is it's it's not it's not black or white and it's not binary. It's not no regulation or too all you know heavily regulated. There's a, there's a level of regulation we've got to find that works to, to balance competing interests and spur investment. And when it does work, um, you know American capital markets are the most efficient in the world because we do have an SEC that regulates. You go to other countries and there's interlocking directorates and it's murky and there's no transparency. Well you know, investors don't list their companies in those countries, really. They come to the U.S. So, you know, I think there's many, many case studies of why the right degree of regulation actually works. So I, I think about it all the time and I'm I'm kind of amused by it. And anytime people in the United States complain about too much regulation, I say, you know, there's about 150 other countries you can go to and see how you like it. You know, <laughs> you're, you're going to come back here and say, not so bad.
0: And, you know, it's interesting as someone who's lived in the business world and and had a business, an international business. There's a big debate right now. Is is this corp- is the corporate tax rate, and whether or not countries, whether you know, we have how high our tax rate is. Even though the effective rate is not high as high as the actual rate, but you know, but given for adjustments, do you think? I mean, is there merit to to this argument that if if we drop the corporate rate, would we get a lot more? influx of business, you think, in, in the domestic United States?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of a fetching argument. Um, I mean, the fact is interest rates have been so low. I mean, it's almost free money. If you're running a company with any good ideas, the ability to borrow the money you know, at, at 1%, um, is there and it's always has been. So I'm, I'm, I cast a critical eye on if that alone, um, you know, I think the budget considerations are huge. I think you don't want to tax corporations, you know, as a, as a general policy, but they impose social costs. Um, so, you know, we've got to cover the cost of, if some company pollutes, um, you know, there's reasons, you know, I, I think it's the social contract between people people, you know, wealthy individuals and poor individuals and corporations and private citizens has to be balanced. And if someone gets favorable treatment on an argument that, well, they're helping everyone else in these sort of kind of, let's say, trickle down ways, you know, it loses credibility when some guy goes, look, why am I paying 30 percent of my paycheck and and a huge company pays zero or 10 percent? You just you scratch your head and goes, it doesn't make sense. Maybe an economist can explain why it makes sense in a sort of Complicated trickle down way, but on a gut feeling in politics is is the gut is is local. You're going to have to keep that social contract so people buy in and want to pay taxes. I think you don't want a situation like Greece or some Mm -hmm. European countries where 90 percent of people don't pay taxes. I mean, the wonder of our system is if taxes are reasonable, um, um, you know. I think people pay. You know, when I was a kid in Milwaukee. We had these German roots, this sort of Teutonic fascination with cleanliness and sanitation. And the garbage men would go in your backyard to get your garbage can. They'd take it from your backyard, take it to the garbage cart, and then put it back. You didn't have to, like, take your garbage out to the curb. And we were highly taxed in the city of Milwaukee. But, you know, I always believe that if people got high services for their high taxes, nobody complained. It's only when you're paying high taxes and you're going, what am I getting in return for this, that people say it doesn't seem right. And so I think yeah. this whole situation is, uh, um, you know, again, far more nuanced. And, uh, you know, I have to say I was, I was a tax lawyer in 1986, the last time there was major tax reform. And uh, I was in charge of something called the gas guzzler tax. And as was the youngest – most inexperienced attorney. What you do at a tax law, they give you one section of the tax code. You sort of become expert at it. We had a client. um, And so here's how it worked. And it was my introduction into this day how crazy the tax code is. So it makes perfect sense. A gas guzzler tax. If you have a a luxury automobile that gets lousy mileage, you pay a surtax. Perfect sense. But the way that it worked, that if you had a, a limousine, and you chopped you chopped, let's say, a Maserati in half or a Rolls-Royce in half and turned it into a stretch limo. The stretch limo had an exemption from the tax. So you could take a Maserati with a lousy tax mileage, cut it in half, make it a stretch Maserati limousine, then you would escape the gas guzzler tax. So the tax law, now multiply that by, you know, ten thousand different tax laws. That's the degree of complexity. So I don't think you can say lower corporate tax. I mean, with lower this rate, raise that rate within it. The number of exceptions is bewildering. And at the end of the day, on the gas guzzler tax, there was n- almost no one who paid it. It was a handful of foreign companies. All the big U.S. manufacturers found exemptions for it. So, you know, I think we have to be careful, but the disconnect between what's get advertised as a tax reform and what's really happening behind the scenes. I learned that at a very young age.
0: What do you think is the thing that Americans, most Americans, just don't know about West Africa at, that they should, you know, to be informed? People like what's the what's the piece of knowledge or or, or, or misconception that's out there that could, that would be correct and really significant if it were?
1: Um, yeah, well, and I I think there's a um, um, uh, maybe a stereotype of this. Corruption coming out of West Africa. There are these internet scams or these email scams um, You know, it's they're really based more they call them the Nigerian scams um, And you know, there's I think that the amazing thing to me is the talent of the people in Ghana So, you know, you go to schools. I mean people that are you know, it's my age um, You many of them came from schools that are so modest by comparison to a US school. They're overcrowded they don't have the physical plant. The teaching is by rote. A lot of times, you know, it's very well-meaning teachers. They they're so under resourced. And Yet the Ghanaian graduates that come out of them, first, they're absolutely literate in all of the African literature and culture. They know the Western canon. They know Shakespeare, Francis Bacon. I mean, they they're so well read that you're you're just sort of gobsmacked at how educated they are. Mm. And I think mm. that's one of the stereotypes I want to to to, to dispel is that. Despite the paucity of the, uh, the the nicety, the physical plant and the laboratories, the school libraries and things, you know, people come out of this country very well educated, and when they do get a chance to work in kind of world class situations, they rise to the top often. You're disproportionately, I think Ghanaians who go abroad uh, punch well above their weight, very very successful, and so. I think the human capital of Ghana in particular and West Africa and, and the whole continent is terrific. It's a young continent. You know, most of the population is under thirty. It's not like the US where we have this baby boomer, you know, sixty five and older, or Japan, which has a negative birth rate. You know, the, Africa is young and growing and there is this impatience and they're they're demanding good government. Um they are I mean there's a lot of people looking for jobs, and they're hungry. And I think that might be a real force of of change for getting rid of this the old guard that that you know, transited from colonialism to the first stages of democracy, but sort of calcified. And now it's going to be a new generation that's going to take up that torch. Well, you're it's been, an exciting time
0: and you in your story is part of that excitement. and um thanks for writing the book, and thanks for spending some time talking with me.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Stephen for coming on the podcast. Check out his book, A Brony and the Chocolate Factory. It would be a great holiday gift for someone you know and love. Thank you again. listening to this podcast and until next time my friends fare thee well and happy holidays